Well, these were limbered up, I guess. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Shit. Really, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll go straight into the intro again. Okay. Try to, try to remember how to pronounce pedagogy. <laughs> Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? And how do you say it in English? Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read the Yeah, welcome back. Welcome back to Writers Read the Early Ship. Conversations with authors and artists about the lopsided pleasures of their pre-developed over early unripe work. I'm your embarrassed host, Jason MD, down in the groove as always in Gifu Rock City, Japan. My special guest and very patient guest this episode received an MFA in literary arts from Brown University and a PhD in comparative literature from Stanford University. And currently teaches poetry, creative nonfiction, and creative writing pedagogy in the School of Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia. Having taken her poetry course and having benefited from having her as part of the examining committee for my thesis, I can personally attest to what a phenomenal and attentive and thorough and innovative and hardworking instructor she is. Not only that, she's also the prize-winning author of the poetry collection The Silk the Moths Ignore, and a contributor to the collaborative poetry collective Midwinter Constellation. Her first poem, written when she was nine, was an ode to a Lord of the Rings character who was cut from the film adaptations. Impressively, she can knit and read at the same time. Distinguished listeners, it's Bronwyn Tate. And Bronwyn, all apologies. Uh, distinguished listeners, we've been talking for about... Mm, 40 minutes or so when I realized I'd committed the ultimate amateur mistake of not pressing the record button. So all of that fantastic chat is lost. So whatever uh, I say from here, you can just trust that the earlier part was much more brilliant. Right. <laughs> yes. The fabled loss. <laughs> it was all gems. It was. Yes. Well, I'm confident that uh, <laughs> this will be almost as good. Probably. <laughs> Thanks again for making the time for this. Sorry for that screw up. And okay. uh, yes, I I asked all these brilliant questions as well. But now I'll just in order not to bore each other, I'll ask some totally different questions. <laughs> okay. Okay, you got all some. Right. Uh, sure. Or you could ask like follow ups or something. I just don't want to sound like I'm reciting. Okay, I did ask you about your writing routine, and it was in the middle of your explanation when I realized I wasn't recording, and. You were saying that uh, it changes from term to term, and then in the summer it can get a bit haphazard, but we didn't get to your actual writing routine. Sure, sure. I'd say at the beginning of each term, there's a kind of looking at all the things that are there and what time is left, and an, at least an attempt to say this time is going to be allocated to these things and this time to those things. Um, and what's best when I can do it is having the writing be as early in the day as possible. Mm. Um, and I think it depends somewhat what I'm working on. There are some things, like in some ways, a lot of my, if I'm designing something for a class, in some ways that's writing too. And some of that I can kind of jump into whenever. Um, but the more something is, um, mysterious like not sure where it's going not sure if it's even going anywhere the more it takes kind of a wrench and like a 
an act of will to move myself out of the kind of to-do list and finish the thing and move on to the next thing approach that I have to be in in so much of the rest of my life and into the kind of inefficiency space mm -hmm. of making new work. Do you write every day? Often, not always, but often. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think I'm more of a kind of incremental accretion writer than a kind of long marathon writer. Which is to say that what you get 20 minutes one morning and then that stews in your mind all day and then maybe you yeah i think when i'm regular with things it is kind of percolating in that way um but also there are times when i can say there are times when just like the teaching stuff is so consuming that it's better to just say like okay i'm just doing that today um and then i'll do two hours on the writing another day but i'd say writing routine in as much as i have one is sort of as early in the day as possible like try to shot everything off, turn everything off, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then often with some kind of container either of time or of space uh, that lets me kind of enter it differently. But I think I, I often feel like I should be working on things at different stages. So even if I'm like working on revisions, part of me is like, but I should be drafting new things. So sometimes there's like a, a friction there, you know? A useful friction? Uh, sometimes useful and sometimes just maybe need to make peace that like there are different phases and not everything can always be happening, you mm, know? Yeah. Are you nitpicky with stationary? Uh, I mean, I Or do you write on your computer or it doesn't both, matter? Both, both. Yeah. Um, it was funny when I was preparing this, you know, the, the gathering of my early shit, I looked partly over some like childhood writing and some of it was on this like really grainy, like line notebook paper with like dull pencil. And I had sort of this like, oh, shudder response to that. <laughs> um, so I would say I'm not like picky picky, but I like smooth paper. I like ink. I like really fine tip pens. Um, but I do, I do both handwriting and computer. It depends on the thing and depends on the time. Me too. Yeah. Have you ever gotten into trouble for writing something? I don't think so. Hmm? Not yet. Not yet. We'll see. Yes. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a book that sort of most of your friends or your, your literary group, everybody loved it and you hated it? Hmm. Not a single book. And I also would say, I know a lot of people who read very eclectically. And I mean, I, I guess I know a lot of poets and sometimes there are things that a lot of poets are into. But I also, I mean, like today I had a, a book group that's with some friends um, who are either current or former English professors. Um, and it's just reading like fantasy novels, romance novels, and whatever is sort of silly and entertaining. Hmm. Okay. What's the best book you ever received as a gift? Maybe Emily Dickinson comes to mind. And I think when, I think maybe a friend of my mom's gave me a, like an Emily Dickinson collection when I was maybe like middle school, like 12 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was sort of one of the first books of poetry that I spent time with and maybe was also something that sort of felt like a gesture of seeing possibility for me in writing. And I remember, I think she wrote something about the like, you know, wrote about these as, so, you know, these are the, my letters to the world that never wrote to me. Um, and that sense of, of something received across time and also of, of writing as sort of this mysterious act of communication. Have you ever gone on an Emily Dickinson pilgrimage or any other literary pilgrimage? I don't know if I've traveled on purpose to go somewhere, but there have definitely been moments where I've been somewhere and associated it with writing. So maybe like Big Sur and thinking about Richard Brodigan's Confederate General from Big Sur or um, North of Italy and thinking about Rilke and like Duino elegies or like looking for Byron's signature in the like Chateau de Chillon in, in Switzerland. All right. What about for you? What is your, what would your perfect literary day look like? Like day of writing or? Could be writing, could be reading. Mm. Um, all right. I actually have talked with friends about this. I think the ideal would be to get a group of people together who want to write and read and then go somewhere um, where you can like hike between towns like in Scotland or Italy. Mm -hmm. um, and so then it would be like, maybe get up early, write. Then maybe one person would take everybody's baggage and drive to the next place. And then everybody else would hike and maybe stop for lunch on the way. Mm. Then, and whoever's driving could write while they're waiting for the other people to get there because they drove and just sort of hike all day, talk, get somewhere, you know, sit in a hammock and read for a while cook a nice dinner together. Yeah. That would be a wonderful literary Doesn't that day. sound fun? I might do that tomorrow. Okay, we were talking earlier about creating stuff. It's in one of my notebooks. I think it's in my writing notebook, but it was mm. Paul Oster okay. talking about, uh, he's he's saying writing is walking. It's, you have to mm. to walk if you want to write, you know, that mm -hmm. at least for mm -hmm. him, that, that's what he would do. I find it, it's true as well. If I can, if I'm working yeah. on something and I can leave my, my music at home mm -hmm. and just go for mm -hmm. a walk for mm -hmm. an hour i come back with not necessarily with ideas but i sort of know what to do uh, or it helps oh, yeah yeah i think kind of anything that like uses the body but lets the mind wander mm. you know so i think like showering can be really good because in some ways you're sort of like your body's going through these like repetitive actions but that don't require your mind your conscious mind at mm -hmm. all Right. But there's no sense that you should or could be doing something else. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could like bring your podcast in and really turn the volume up and go for it. I um, Caleb does that. My husband does that sometimes, but I mostly don't. Um, but or something like washing the dishes, you mm -hmm. know, that you're sort of doing with your body. I think, yeah, those are important times for writing. Does knitting work that way for you? 
It can, it can for sure, but knitting, I know I'm often doing it while I'm either in a conversation with somebody or reading or watching a movie or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it could. I've thought about that sometimes of like knit during a break. Lydia Davis, I was reading some of her essays about writing recently, mm -hmm. and she talks about like if you have sort of a writing session that it's a good idea to like leave 15 minutes between when you want to stop writing and when you'll like do something else that is stimulating or that like requires you to make contact with someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and that sometimes you'll kind of get these things trickling in, which I feel like, you know, it's like do a writing session and then just like take 15 minutes to kind of like tidy your office or make a cup of coffee or something that you're not still in the writing, but you're like open if something shows up. Yeah. Spirit's free to wander yeah. where it will. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Walking, though, I still think is the best, at least for me. Mm, it's, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. And boxing, too, because it's, mm, it's although it's there's physical. a certain level of concentration is required, mm -hmm, a lot of it is repetitive, mm -hmm. you know, skipping rope and or yeah, hitting yeah. the speed bag. Mm -hmm. And I think with walking, also, there's sort of like the clear sense of progress, right? You're getting from a place to a place. And there's a way that I see that that could kind of shake something loose as well. Mm. Right. Or or if you're walking somewhere where you have some sense of like vista or view, I think even just those things of like feeling like you have perspective on what your what surrounds you can give you a different sense of perspective on your kind of interior space or your mental space, too. Yes. And it's also a matter of paying attention to to the minute particulars, just to the details of your mm -hmm. walk. I find that helps, too, mm. because that I if I'm focused on what I'm looking at and where I am then I can focus on what I need to write about or want to write about. But if I'm just going for a stroll, listening to podcasts or music or something that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't work. Yeah. It's tricky though. Cause it's, there are so many options, right? I mean, even you are contributing with your podcast, the clamor <laughs> yes. of things that one could be doing on one's walk. Right. That's true. Well, I'm all for people listening to to this podcast while they go for a, a healthy stroll. Yes. But, um, <laughs> That it might not help them when they come back to the writing desk later. Oh, no, on the other hand, might. I mean, there's something might. to be said for getting ideas as well, yes. or rating your thinking with the thinking of others. Yes. My. Uh, okay, here's a. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll introduce it by talking about myself. Um, Wonderful. I'm I'm really interested in people's first words, and mm. it seems to me that most. Foreigners, North Americans particularly, generally know what their first word was. But Japanese people, I don't think I've ever met any Japanese person who knows what their first word was. You know, when I asked my wife, what is your, what was your first word? She said, I have no idea. I'll have to ask my mm -hmm. mother. And her mother couldn't remember either. It's just not a, it's yeah, not much not importance. Yeah, not culturally preserved. Uh -huh. I don't know. And maybe it was just my family, but it was sort of a big deal for, for us. Uh, my, mm -hmm. My Sasha's first word was um, Carl. Huh, like good dog Carl? Yes, from good dog okay. Carl. Yeah, uh -huh. that was his first word. Wow, before read... like mama or papa or before anything? Before mama or papa, yes. Wow. Uh, because we just, both my boys loved that book, but it okay. was, uh, we used to read that 
all the time. And again, not much conflict there, just some action yeah, and uh, stuff happens. Yeah. Some romping. And yeah. And that was his first word. And I remember my wife was slightly mm-hmm. disappointed. Like, it yeah. could it be mama. It's okay. What about Carl? mama? <laughs> Carl. I mean, that's not an easy thing to say. I mean, also like, you know, someone who's hearing a bunch of Japanese as well, right? The R and the L there. Yeah, exactly. Impressive. Um, what do, do you know what your first word was? I don't know if I know about word, but I, there's sort of like three phrases that that are like in the lore of baby me. Mm-hmm. Um, and one is that when I wanted my dad to pick me up, I would say, ho, hold it. And I was the it, uh-huh. like hold it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I do how to say um, weed a book really book. little. Mm-hmm. And I would say that as soon as he came home. Um, and then there's a story of me like yelling from the backseat of the car. I dop my tabe coke. Um, can you tell what that was? But to me, it sounds like I got my tub of toke with toke wine. <laughs> yes. Is that what it no. was? No. No, <laughs> no, surprisingly. It was I dropped my strawberry shortcake. <laughs> can you say I it think- again in your in the I kid lingo? my tabe coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um they're funny weird stories of me um my parents one time were were driving and they would like give people rides a lot when i was a kid but hitchhikers them, or just friends um like friends and my dad's a priest so it'd be like people in his church um and one time they were like oh i think we'll like pick up speed as we get on the highway and then i said like who's squeed <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds like a good Dickens villain. Squeed. Right. Squeed. We're going to pick, pick up, up Squeed as we get on the highway. It's like not another one. Oh, <laughs> who is this Squeed you want to pick up? Okay, one last question before your early shit there, Brian. Yeah. What, what does literary success look like to you? Ooh. I'd say it's like a trap to pin it on anything outside because we have so little control over that and there's so much contingency there mm-hmm. that it has, to, I think for me, it has to be something like continuing to grow in your work and find meaning in your work because anything else is so out of your control. Right. So it, it wouldn't matter to you if it's sold or not or one prize. I mean, I'd or love that or... to happen and that would be wonderful. But I think also, I don't know, even talking to people who've had a lot of that happen, I think it often feels kind of anticlimactic or there's always like the next bigger thing that could happen that hasn't happened, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that stuff's elusive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for it to reach people in, in whatever way and however many people is, you know? another thing right however many people do you despair that i mean i think there's always been this thing that people don't read as much as they i think as much as they should but that's uh, Mm. but that it's it's getting worse that people are reading less and less all the time do you think that's true i don't know that i get that sense Uh, maybe partly because my kids read so much Mm. you know i mean i just I had to take my kids to the library again today and I'd taken them like two days ago, but they'd already read all the books that they got. Um, I don't know. And sort of where I'm present, 
online or on Twitter or something like that, it's very book focused. And, you know, in my job, it's all, you know, people come to work with me when they want to read, right? I think there are things around attention and the ability to kind of sit with book that even people who used to really enjoy it sometimes struggle with just because there are so many other things that work with attention differently. And I think just the other thing around something like success, you know, defining it ex externally by something like sales or prizes or something like that is that there's just so much kind of like chance and marketing that goes into that stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Like you said, out of our, out of our hands. Out of our hands. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there are things that win prizes that are like very beautiful and very disturbing and that, uh, and, you know, very deserving. And that can be like a wonderful, exciting thing. Um, but there are also lots of wonderful things that kind of don't get recognition or don't until much later, you mm. know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel really lucky that, that in some ways my teaching is my work, you know, and that writing is connected to that. Um, but is I don't need to like, rely on the writing in quite the same way as say if i were doing freelance writing or something you know so it, like it can be it can be slower or it can be sure yeah. at your speed and pace mm. did you ever think or contemplate you know maybe i won't teach maybe i'll just write and see what happens you know what kind of no and i think because i lived in the united states where health insurance is so important right yeah Honestly, I think, you know, if I think it was so impressed on me that like you sort of have to have something to fall back on and you like, you know, it's very risky to not have health insurance. And what if something happens to you, you could end up deep in debt, you know, that mm. um, I think that felt very risky to me. And it's funny because in some ways it's like, oh, and getting a PhD is like so not risky. It's like it's just as <laughs> difficult, if not more, to like get a decent job at a university, you know? Yeah. Um, but somehow that path seemed to me at least like it was clear what the steps were. Or I would have health insurance during it or something like that. I could, yeah. I mean, I think also I, I really love teaching and I, I have for a long time, you know? Right. Yeah. And you're very good at it as well. Thank so no, that was like, I really enjoyed your course a lot and did a lot of good writing. And a lot of us people from that class, we get together from That's time wonderful. to time. It makes me really happy. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, a lot of it is we don't talk too much about writing, although there's some of that, but I mean, there's something about feeling like you're not alone in it, even if you're not talking about the writing that you sort of have comrades, right? In that experience. Yeah. And again, this goes back to uh, people reading enough or not. And sometimes it's easy to feel that everybody's reading and writing a lot because mm. a lot of the coolest people I talk to, all the coolest people I talk to are reading a lot yeah. and writing a lot. And therefore, maybe everybody is. And if you step just one one step out of that bubble, you go, oh, oh dear. Yeah. One thing I've been kind of pushing back on is any kind of like when somebody says they read a book, but they're sort of like, oh, I just finally got to this or like, oh, this is a gap in my reading. And I feel like there's so much out there to read that like one, whenever you get to something is a wonderful time to get to it. And it's not like a book is stale or like not worth reading if you don't read it as soon as it comes out. Mm -hmm. And then also like 
all of us have read different things depending on like where we happen to go to school and what has we've stumbled across and it's not like i feel like there's no book where it's sort of like everyone should be ashamed if they haven't read this right, right yeah we're all patchwork yes i agree and a lot i find that with this is i don't think particularly insightful but again context when you come to a book your yeah. age your ability you know what you're going through at the time can really affect whether it mm -hmm. gets to you or not i think it, mm -hmm. most most readers have a book that is really important to them you know the book aside it just came at exactly the right time right. same with albums and movies too i suppose totally. you know and totally. then others that are you know would be great otherwise just don't land because mm -hmm. you're either not ready mm -hmm. for it or you're past it or whatever it is you know mm -hmm. watership down that came at the, exactly the right time mm -hmm. for me it's great so did mm -hmm. on the road so did sure lolita or infinite jest or a bunch of mm -hmm. stuff yeah mm -hmm. joan didion came in exactly mm -hmm. the right time mm -hmm. and then lots of things that i, I thought that's ah, it's clearly good but uh eh. not speaking to me right now or not right now maybe yeah. later but then yeah. on the other hand do you have i assume, i bet you do uh, sort of a couple of books that you keep coming back to them and they keep changing with you as you reread them as you for sure for sure um i mean i think there's some that maybe it's like i change when i re-enter them you know um and i think there are ones more that you sort of that you turn to for comfort so it might be you know something that we talked about in the in the unrecorded part about robin mckinley right mm -hmm. uh, and her books like the blue sword or sunshine that i just sort of enter into with delight you know their books maybe like um dorothy sayers who's a have you read her she's a mystery writer i don't um, think so no she has a book called gaudy night um that's about a female detective at like kind of in the 30s at a, a woman's college um and there's sort of all these debates about like can you do intellectual work and do these other things and our sort of brain and heart in antagonistic and why and i think that's one that i kind of saw different things in at different points mm -hmm. um and i assigned it for a class one time where i was teaching the class was otherwise on um was on female modernist writers so it was like we were reading that alongside like virginia wolf and and zora neale hurston and gertrude stein and l larson mina loy and I mean, she's, I don't know, I like writers like that as well, where, where things get bridged, you know, because she also has these essays about like the language of ambiguity in T.S. Eliot, but then she's like writing mystery novels, right? right. And for her, it was because she needed to make money on her writing. But it's also, they're the mystery novels of somebody who was also thinking about poetry, you know? Right, the bridge between, or like you yeah. said, having a, just a broad approach to reading anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. not being a snob about it. If you yeah. can help it, yeah. Yeah. Hello? Yes, hello. Hey. Sorry, I was just trying to find that Paul Astor quote. So I, mm. I was being so, so blasé about how well curated all my info is. Uh, I wanted to thank you, Brahman, for it was you who turned me on to reading craft books at all. I really mm. hadn't read too many before I took your course. And 
after reading uh, Joe Moran's book. Yeah, I remember you wrote to him, right? Yes, and he wrote back. It was really, mm -hmm. it's really charming. And uh, and then I read um, several sh short sentences about writing. Mm -hmm. I revisited that one recently. That's really good. I find that yeah. Just really exciting to read and very, very useful and powerful. I pulled up some bits from that that were like really speaking to me the other day. Yeah. I'll read a couple for you if you want. Let me see. Okay. All right. Yeah, I love this one. The obsession with transition negates a basic truth about writing, a magical truth you can get anywhere from anywhere, always and almost instantly. <laughs> almost <laughs> kinda, instantly. Almost instantly, right? It takes some work. Um, yeah, writing happens in the sentences, the work I am here to do, cut, arrange, add, move, notice. Simply reading and noticing is fine. I think mm. that was me after reading him that was just sort of like, okay, just happen to stay in the sentences, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, here was the bit that that was responding to. He says, a writer's real work is the endless winnowing of sentences, the relentless exploration of possibilities, the effort over and over again to see in what you started out to say the possibility of saying something you didn't know you could. Yes. Right? Yeah. I wrote down quite a lot of stuff from, from mm -hmm. that book. And the other day I wrote this to somebody on a postcard. I think it's right near the end. He's talking about revision. Yeah. So revise toward brevity, remove words mm -hmm. instead of adding them, toward directness, language that is evasive or periphrastic, toward simplicity in construction and word choice, toward clarity, a constant lookout for ambiguity, toward rhythm where it's lacking, toward literalness as an antidote to obscurity, toward mm. implication, the silent utterance of your sentences. I love that maybe the most. Yeah. I mean, I feel like each of those could be like a pass that you take on a piece of writing, yes, right? Like yeah. those could be a journey through your work, right? Yeah. And then he continues with toward variation, always toward mm -hmm. silence, leave some toward mm -hmm. the name of the world, yours to discover towards presence, the quiet authority of your prose. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. To go through it each time with those yeah. things in mind. And then the uh, the Paul Aster quote, Oster? Oster, yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. It's from Winter Journal. And he says, uh, in order to do what you do, you need to walk. Walking is what brings the words to you, what allows you to hear the rhythms of the words as you write them in your head. One foot forward and then the other foot forward, the double drumbeat of your heart. Two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs, two feet. This mm -hmm. and then that that and then this writing begins in the body it is the music of the body and even if the words have meaning can sometimes have meaning the music of the words is where the meanings begin you sit at your desk in order to write down the words but in your head you are still walking always walking and what you hear is the rhythm of your heart the beating of your heart writing as a lesser form of dance that's a good one mm. makes me think of couple things charles olson's projective verse and also there's a bit in, that ursula Le Guin quotes from virginia wolf talking about a sentence sort of like rises up like a wave in the mind mm. and it's sort of like the rhythm yeah okay a sight and emotion creates this wave in the mind long before it makes words to fit it yes that's right i feel on. like something like that right mm. yeah I think that's something especially that poetry explores, you know, that like sort of that being led by sound can get you to something true just as much as being led by kind of like idea or intention, mm. yes. you know? And I don't think 
you know, when they start teaching you poetry in junior high or whenever it comes mm -hmm. up, they don't teach you that it comes from the body. You know, it's all yeah. an intellectual yeah. exercise and to show how smart you are by understanding. Right. Or rhyme or something like that is kind of ornament or decoration, yes. yeah, right? Yeah. Rather than bodily. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Mm. Does your early shit start in the body? Um, oh, dear. Big question. <laughs> um, I mean, what should I start with? I've, I've pulled a few things here. I have the the poem that I mentioned in the bio, which is the, the Lord of the Rings poem fanfic. I have a, like a sonnet from high school. Mm -hmm. What do you want? Well, let's start with that early one, the when you and okay. I, the Lord of the Rings okay. one. Yeah. All right. You ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. It's about Glorfindel. Glorfindel was an elven lord whom Frodo met near the ford. He was fair, gold was his hair, as he went riding by. Bright and keen was his eye. His cloak flew out as he rode about. He could change his form in flight or storm, and wisdom was on his brow. He was full of mirth from the day of his birth. With the strength of his hand, he fought for the land. His voice was like a flute, and the animals mute stopped to hear him sing. The hobbits were in fear when they heard a horse draw near, but they recovered soon as they heard o'er the moon the tinkling bells of an elven horse. Glorfindel was a fine elf indeed, for he helped the hobbits in their hour of need. A fine elf indeed. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> were you were you copying something when you wrote that? Um maybe I think the poem I was reading most then was The Highwayman. So that was in your which mind. Which was magical. You know, the wind was a ghostly galleon, you know, the moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there <laughs> is there anything you, is there anything you think you got right there that maybe you you don't do now or you couldn't do now? Mm. Not really. I mean, I think it does scan accurately. Yeah. You know, like the meter is consistent meter, which is like, I guess, something for being nine. <laughs> I feel like there's something. I feel like there, I was trying to think about like, what is the feeling you get when you look at your old shit? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and the feeling that came to mind for me was like tender cringe. <laughs> tender cringe. Yeah. <laughs> tender what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, I feel like there's like a, you feel tenderness when you can feel the distance, you know, and sort of like, oh, that like, you know, weird homeschooled kid who didn't watch any TV and was like kind of lonely and was so obsessed with Lord of the Rings and like got so caught up in it. And like, I think, you know, at some point when my mom was reading out loud, like the bit from the Mines of Moria with like the drums and they are coming and I like was so caught up in it. I couldn't sit still. I had to like pace the room. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the cringe comes from like, even as children, like we kind of are ourselves, you know? And I think like even reading your earliest work, there's bits where you kind of like recognize who you still are, mm -hmm. you know, but in these kind of naked, cringy ways. And I feel like the cringe comes from that recognition. But why, why are they cringy? Because they're still there. You know, like like some of my early work, I see these kind of like desires to like please people 
or like, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And it's sort of like, oh, I still, that's still part of me. Ouch. I see. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. A bit of both then. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Although it depends on the, on the writer and I guess also sure. on the work. The last interview I did was with a guy who was, he'd gone into the boxes in his attic and dug up. Okay. Uh, uh, like a comic book that he'd drawn in high school okay. or something. Yeah, yeah. And, but his reaction to it was entirely positive. He said it was huh. just great to see it because it brought back a lot of good memories mm. and and the people that mm -hmm. I knew then and the cool stuff that I was doing and you know little things sure. that I'd forgotten but that were triggered by this. So his approach to I mean, it was, maybe there's something about poetry in particular, you mm. know, and sort of child poetry is so or sort of like adolescent poetry is so sincere often. Yes, that's true. <laughs> You know, <laughs> there's a special window there where it's particularly sincere. I think, yeah. you know, yeah, you you do see. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right that we 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 think we've changed a lot, and in some ways, maybe yes, but we're still there in that early stuff, yeah. and it is recognizable. And if and if the traits that you see there are not your favorites, that can be. I mean, I think difficult. you kind of see a mix, right? And you're sort of like, oh, yes. And then things where you're like, oh, gosh, that's still with me. You yeah, know? I still haven't shaken that off. Yeah. yeah. When am I going to get around to shaking that off? Yes. Right? Any day now. Mm, mm -hmm. Tender cringe. I like mm -hmm. that. Okay. But yeah, it's pretty accomplished technically, I thought, that poem. Like you say, yeah, it, it tracks. Yeah, I mean, it, it scans. Yeah. And I will say, actually, like, I'm kind of getting interested in meter these days, mm. um, partly, partly from teaching it. And partly I've been reading Annie Finch's work about, um, about especially how sort of like iambic meter has persisted in these ways, but like trochaic meter or dactylic meter. And I mean, talking about like poetry in the body, right? That like mm -hmm. kind of meter as rhythm and connected to memory and that like different meters might like evoke different things physically. Mm -hmm. um, I I kind of do want to explore more there. And this comes back to maybe the, that was in the rec unrecorded bit about how music can do that with while still being trite superficially or lyrically sure. trite, right? Yeah. The, the rhythms and so on can get in, can worm I mean, their I way in. You weren't in the class where I signed James Long and Buck, but I mean, one of the things he said is, is that sort of like poetry needs to create its own friction. Um, in a song, there can be kind of like a tension between like the melody and the words or something like that, right? right. But in poetry, it has to make its own tension, its own friction. Mm. Cook it up out of nowhere, just on the page mm. in some library. Yeah. That's why songwriters want to be poets, right? Mm. It's also why poets want to be songwriters, I think. Right. Often. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I enjoyed that. That was great. Now, then the, you said there's a teenage one? Yeah, sure. Um, cool. Here we go. All right. This one's a sonnet from 1999. The embers in my heart have not died out for first love is not easily forgot. I am trapped in a tangled web of doubt and drowning in an endless sea of thought. My chains are but thin threads to days now spent. These bonds are weak, yet I dare not break free. Though loving words do now mock and torment and tenderness is not but memory. Yet I recall the light that came with love, youth's eagerness to please and to be pleased, when whispered words all sorrow could remove. O oh, memories, pain increased and pain eased. 
I'll treasure them and put behind me blame. Thus from the embers will burst forth new flame. Mm -hmm. There's that. (laughs) There's that eager to please. Yeah. Rising up again, very clearly. Uh, So does this sonnet, does it sit uncomfortably with you? (laughs) I mean, I think again, like it scans and it's not technically terrible, but it is very abstract, right? That thing, I think in the unrecorded bit that we were talking about, right? There's like, there's nothing, um, there's no detail there, right? Right. Yeah. It's all abstractions. Were you, were you reading a lot of sonnets at the time or why go for a sonnet? Yeah, I think it was a school assignment. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're sitting at home reading some Shakespeare or whatever and you thought, okay. Right, probably, yeah. Mm. <laughs> was it was it autobiographical or were you just making all that stuff up? I mean, I think I I probably had like been with somebody and broken up. So it was like, you know, in as much as yeah, autobiographical. Mm. You said sixteen. So you're yeah. writing poetry at sixteen. Were you carrying around a stack of poems at the time? Or was it more of a private endeavor? Um I don't think I was writing a ton of poems by that time. I think it was much more, I read, right, like right around then, I was probably reading um, Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones. Mm -hmm. And so it was much more just sort of like, yeah, like notebook practice and like sort of free writing and that kind of thing. And I, I don't know if I had a sense then that that like, you got to do a lot of this stuff before there's poems or they're like poems, maybe later, but not ready, something like that. Or mm. like, um, and then I had some, like there are notebooks where there'll be like a piece of a poem. I think for a while before I really like took any poetry classes, I think I thought of it as this sort of like poetry is like when you get this like fleeting inspiration and you just capture like a little thing or poetry is sort of like this exercise for a class that follows a strict form, right? you know? I had sort of those two models. And I actually, I think I remember, um, I didn't take, I like, I did more literature than creative writing in university, especially at the beginning. I only started doing creative writing classes in my last year. Um, and I think I was really just sort of like, not sure what the workshop would be like and didn't feel drawn to that. It like I would, I don't know, maybe it felt too risky or that everybody would sit around and, and read it and tell you what to do with it or tell you things about it. And I said, oh, I don't know about that. Um, but then by the end, like I did that year of high, of college in Italy. And then when I came back from that, I think I was sort of like ready to, to do it somehow. Mm. Um, but I remember asking somebody like, oh, I'm trying to get into this fiction workshop and this poetry workshop, but like, I don't know, like, can, po- can you really learn poetry? And they're sort of like, oh yeah, you can, you know? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. You can. Yeah. Don't worry. You can. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think it's, uh, I believe it was Somerset mom. Somebody asked him if he wrote on a schedule or mm-hmm. only when inspiration struck. And he said, only when inspiration strikes, but Luckily, it strikes every morning at 9.30. Right, right. right. It's sort of inspiration needs to find you working, right? I like that uh, that book, uh, Writing Down the Bones. I'm rereading mm-hmm. it right now. Actually. Yeah? Oh, yeah. interesting. Just because I, when I first read it, 
you know, I, I found it really useful. And I was doing that mm. sort of 10 minutes a day, wherever I was, mm. and just, mm. you know, picking one thing and scribbling away. Yeah. And then yeah. I started getting lazy. So I thought, okay. I'm, so I've, yeah, I'm about a third of the way through or something, just rereading it now. And it's good. It's, yeah. it's just as good the second time. So I would, I would do all this stuff with my friend where we would kind of free write and then we would like read each other's stuff and like underline one sentence and then use that sentence as a starting point to like uh -huh. do more free writing. Yeah. Uh, is that something she recommends? Yes. Or did we make that up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We would do that. Um, yeah. Do you still free write like that at all? Um, not quite in that way. Um, but I do a kind of a version of that now that's more like Linda Berry inspired. We talked about Linda Berry maybe yeah. on the unrecorded part. The famous unrecorded yes. part. Yeah. If you're like, oh yes, we we discussed <laughs> Ulysses, we discussed the Bible um, and uh, you were both very smart. Yes, um, and really witty too. You were especially yes. witty. Mm. I just I'm still sore from laughing. That was great. Yes. Um <laughs> anyway, Linda Berry has this um this version that I kind of turn to. I think the issue for me sometimes with something like free writing is that it can easily go into abstraction, you know, just sort of all feelings or like all thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, but I do this Linda Berry thing sometimes where um, she has this in this book called What It Is, I think. There's like just a whole list of like nouns or words. And so that, and then she says, just sort of pick a word at random. So I like, I physically wrote them down um and put them in a cup <laughs> and i'll like draw one out and then it's sort of like spend a few minutes just like making a list of images that come to mind for you with that word mm -hmm. um and then like kind of pick one that you feel like a pull towards and then write from that for you know three pages or something I do that sometimes. And I've been doing that as a way to kind of generate, try to generate material for some creative nonfiction work. Mm. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, do you, yeah. is it just sort of a limbering up type exercise or do you, does it sort of bear well, fruit? Well, I've been using it probably. I'm trying to, I'm working on some kind of creative nonfiction, maybe collection of essays about um, the like tiny experimental college where I taught for three years before I came to UBC. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think part of I'm going, I'm going about it very inefficiently kind of on purpose because I, I want to get past whatever I kind of think is my like established version of what that was and what happened and what it meant. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I'm trying to do that is through this sort of like draw now and see what rises up. And so I will, like, I guess I filter it a little bit, like what from this time of my life or like what from this experience comes. And if something else comes that I'm really feeling a pull towards, I might write it. But if like, there's anything connected to that, I go with that. Mm. Yeah. I, I could be misattributing it, but I think it might have been Faulkner. No, it wasn't. It might have been Joan Didion who said, I don't know what I think about something until I write until about I, it. Yeah. Is that Joan Didion? Do you know? I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I I found that to be true. Yeah. That, that my feelings or ideas or, you know, the way I think about things can be very superficial until I have to sit down and write about it, either in a letter to somebody or in a journal entry or or the kind of, you know, Natalie mm -hmm. Goldberg free writing or something. Yeah. Yeah. That, at least that's how I operate. Yeah. And, I, and that I've been doing by hand mm, when I've done yes, that. Yeah. Which was also kind of a Linda Berry thing of like, 
kind of deliberately slowing yourself down. Yeah. And that isn't that also a Julia Cameron? Is that yeah, name? yeah, the kind of morning pages lady, right? Yeah. Did you ever try that? Yeah, parts of it. I don't think I ever like worked my way through the whole book, but I have done that morning pages type thing at at times. Me yeah. too. And I still do it from time to time, but I yeah, I do find that that's more. It's almost more of a meditation than a writing practice. Yeah. I don't get much useful stuff out of it. For stuff writing. out of it. Yeah, I feel like something like this, where it's sort of like writing from a noun, you know, or like. Um, yeah, I think early free writing, I'll either kind of like try to write from an image and, or like a scene, you know, mm -hmm. um, or maybe on a more poetry side, it's kind of like write some things and then like looking for the kind of patterns or like almost like write and then see what's happening with the words and then play with the patterns in the words mm -hmm. or like etymology stuff or meaning stuff and, and write that way. Okay, I just it came to mind because you said that that sonnet was like a school, a yeah. school thing. Do you ever miss getting assignments and having to sit down and write something? Because... I pursue I pursue them sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not always able to, but like, say, I mentioned Annie Finch. Like, she teaches, and I'm interested in doing a like a, a course with her, a short course um, to do more with meter. Um, and I've done Hua Win. Do you remember? I think we read her work in your in the class you did with me. We read maybe Violet Energy Ingots. Yes, we did. Yeah. I she has taught these kind of mostly asynchronous classes. They're not really workshop based, but she'll do these kind of deep dives into a single writer. And, and it's sort of like that you like read a certain part of their work and then she sends notes and kind of prompts, um, or kind of ways to write along with them mm -hmm. every week. And I did one of those around, um, Harriet Mullen's work, um, that was really generative for me. That was one of the things I really liked and found really useful in your course was that sort of write, you know, we'd read whoever mm -hmm. and then go out and write something like this if you can. You know, mm -hmm. in this general style. Yeah, I found that really useful, you know, and and difficult because you're using yeah. muscles that you don't usually use, right? Yeah, I think it's really valuable. I mean, I think, you know, there can definitely be too much. And I think there's been some critique recently of sort of like against, you know, writing imitations or something like that. And I think, you know, sometimes it's important for a student to be able to like choose who they're imitating or what that relationship is. But I think there's something about sort of not worrying about being derivative mm. and just sort of like trying on a style yeah. and sort of see like inhabiting it formally and seeing what that does to your work and sort of like where it takes you and what you could carry with you or what feels like you in it and what doesn't and why, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. you, yeah, what useful stuff you can pull out of it as mm -hmm. you keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't mm -hmm. agree more. I, but I'm not surprised that there's a backlash, of course. You know, somebody's right. got to write a paper about something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you have some more tender cringe stuff? I have a bit. This was sort of my, like, maybe reading Richard Brodigan, mm. you know, and, like, in Ireland with my friend. Mm -hmm. um, more, like, free verse type things called Post Walk. Okay. 
We saw a bicycle underwater, river, weeds, trailing in the current, us eating ice cream bars under a gentle rain, chocolate-smeared mouths. Then we walk along the river, sky still blue, and we see the cathedral surrounded by tall trees. A sudden image, a giant Gothic cathedral abandoned for centuries, reclaimed by nature. Slender trees grow alongside stout pillars, vines cling to broken stained glass windows, roses twine about silent statues of stern saints, glimpses of blue sky through the falling roof. And I wonder, would there be birds? No birds, she answers my thought, or maybe just silent ones. And I marvel at the way our minds make the same journey. Mm. <laughs> at least there's some detail there yes, like uh, yeah. body is finally present right we've got like messy messy ice cream mouths That's yeah something. yeah no those first those opening lines all kinds yeah. of what there's a bicycle in the river there's a bicycle in the river it was in galway i remember that bicycle every time we went over the bridge we would have to like stop and look at the bicycle in the river yeah no i like that and you're right it's starting to get detailed but seemed to broaden near the end there yeah. into journey. Yeah. yeah, then it kind of went Tintern Abbey or something. Do you have a, a current favorite word or an all time favorite word? Um, the word incarnadine comes to mind. Incarnadine. I remember one time, like, yeah, it's red, but it like has like flesh in it, right? Mm. Um, I remember I had like a label maker once and I just like printed it out with this label maker and stuck it on a red water bottle that I had. Incarnadine. Yes. Mm. Mm. Do you make lists of words that you like? Sometimes, and I definitely like look up words that I don't know when I'm reading. Me too. And that's partly because when I was a kid and I'd be reading something slightly above my level and I'd, mm -hmm. I'd call to my mother and I'd say, what does whatever yeah. mean? And she would yeah. say, oh, every single time, go look it up. Go look it up. Never oh. once did she say, <laughs> incarnity means red with a bit yeah. of flesh in And being a bad mother, Owen asked me what hemorrhaged means. <laughs> Um, last night and I told him. <laughs> yes, stop doing that. Tell him, yell at him to go look it up. Go look it up. And then he'll be like, okay, give me your phone. Hey Siri, what does hemorrhage mean? Right. Yeah, that's, it's not the same. For my, it's not the same, right? For my 10th birthday, my, my maternal yeah. grandfather gave me a huge dictionary. Mm. And after that, maybe it's my mother kept saying, go look it up. You, your grandfather yeah, yeah. just gave you I that. Actually, I mean, I really rely on the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm. And so I do look things up that my kids ask about in there sometimes because I want to know, like, where does it come from and how long did, has it always meant this or did it used to mean something else? Right. Yeah. So you have the f on online or do you online. have the full? Oh, OK. No, Is that it worth it? Because that costs money, right? Uh, it doesn't cost money for me because I get it from oh, the university right. library. Yeah. Yeah. I should get a job. Mm -hmm. there. Mm. OK. Do you have anything else or do you feel... You've had enough. That might be enough for now, unless you want me to look for something in particular related to. Let me see. Maybe just one more. If you can find, again, a sort of teenage type. I like that sonnet, the heartbreak sonnet. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Let me see what I can find. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. Sure. It has an X by it. So that means I like rejected it at some point. 
Oh no, it's very cringe. I don't know, man. No, I don't think no. I can do it. All right, fine. Okay. Okay. December fifteenth, reading Ginsburg and listening to Built to Spill, still dreaming of you and summer in the same breath. I awaken. Of course, I write. How could anyone bear not to preserve those bits of your life that shimmer or bleed? Soggy memories left out in the rain. The letters bleed into one another. You, the illegible unforgotten. Words are useless, but what else do we have? Kisses stain and emptiness persists. Sad as 10,000 shoes that used to belong to someone. Empty as orange peels and wings too small to lift you off the ground. Now all the words you never wrote hang between us. Oh. Soggy memories left out in the Soggy rain. memories, bleeding ink. We've Saddest got all 10, the shoes. shoes. Yes. I mean, I think that was actually probably like a Holocaust Museum reference or something like, uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. The only thing missing from that, Brahman, I think is, I, reading Ginsburg is close, but you should be smoking a cigarette in an alleyway. Mm. Yeah. That's about the only to really get there, right? I should be. I mean, I think even the ex, I think, says that even like, you know, teenage me was like, no, not that. No, this is I've gone too far here. Gone too far. Left yeah. out in the rain. <laughs> yep. I I haven't been back to Canada in a long time, but I am looking forward to whenever I can get back because I know there's a manila envelope full of my right. high school poetry. Yeah, somewhere Ooh. in my old bedroom. And yeah, it's very much soggy memories left out in the rain. Yeah. Very much smoking in alleys. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then striving for that last line that, that you know, will really sink it home. You know, all the words you never you wrote. You never wrote. Hang mm. between us. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, come yeah. on. Tender cringe. Yeah, tender, tender cringe. cringe. Tender cringe, baby Bronwyn. Aww. Aww. Yes. That was great. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Just for you. Beautiful. Well, and for my worldwide audience of uh Ah, I'm I'm pretending they don't exist for now. Okay. <laughs> no, I think that'll be the, the best part. And apart, sure. you know, the from the unrecorded famous stuff that was mm -hmm. even better. Yes. Okay. Thank you for your time. Now, before I let you go, can you just talk a little bit about uh, your recent book, The Silk the Moths Ignore? Sure. Um, so it's a book of poems that was written over a fairly long period of time. And that's sort of like the first phrases in it that are still phrases in it were probably from the end of my MFA. Um, and I'd say it has three kind of different threads in it. There's um, prose poems that are written in a style that I would call versets, where they, they don't have line breaks, but they do have breaks between sentences. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a few sonnets. And there are some little poems that were written kind of after reading Lorene Niedecker's haiku-inspired poems uh, that are like five-line poems with a little rhyme in the middle, but they don't end on a rhyme. And I'd say in terms of material or content, it's a book about um, miscarriage and pregnancy and early parenting and 
about kind of trying to make sense of those experiences and the lack of control that's involved in all of them. It's a lovely book. I'm going through it very slowly and carefully. I have a terrible habit of going too quickly through poetry books. Mm. So I'm making sure not to make that mistake with with your book. And it's lovely, really enjoying it. Thank you. You're so good with color, man. That comes back to Mm, incarnadine incarnadine yes i love color words yeah i don't know and i think often they like they they go back to like the material that the color was made from or was found in you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um do you know the poet melissa range no i don't melissa range um, as in home, yeah. on the, home on the yeah, range yeah yeah home on the range she has a book called scriptorium mm-hmm. and it includes these sonnets that are all written um about like the kind of pigments used in medieval illuminated manuscripts and they're beautiful sonnets. Okay. So they're like woad and ultramarine and like lapis, that kind of thing. Great. Mm-hmm. Bronwyn, thank you so much. Again, all apologies for that. For That's the okay. Screw up at the beginning. I think That's we got okay. some good We've stuff in there. Many thanks to Bronwyn. It was great to talk to her. Make sure you go out and buy her book, The Silk the Moths Ignore. Oh, palest glistening chrysalis green. Yeah, go buy it. My cat Hamnet is sitting on the uh, on the windowsill, looking out at Gifu City. It's Saturday morning. What do you think, Hamnet? That was a pretty good episode, yeah? Yeah, he's a bit wary. Many thanks. Also, to DJ Max in Tokyo for the music. Thanks, man. Uh, Wayne MD for the artwork. Joe MD for help with the intro. Hamnet for help with the outro. Thanks, Hamnet. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, there's a link in the show description. You can buy me a virtual coffee. Every little bit helps. Thank you. Back in three weeks with, uh, <laughs> with the walrus himself. See you then. Bye.